Ray, it's been a great privilege over these years, and thank you for listening to me, for the encouragement you've been to me, and it's just been a, a, a real encouragement and blessing over these three years. It's great just being a message boy, and uh, thank you for your prayers and concern. Sorry Jill's not here today, she's having the final meal at a wedding reception that began sometime yesterday. I'll tell you a bit more about that tonight because I know some of you are praying for us and have some interesting things to report (coughs) this evening. One of the things that has been great for me uh, being a a minister of the Word of God is that the, the Word is a constant encouragement and a constant sustaining And many will tell you, and rightly, that we learn more in our studies and enjoy perhaps more the work we do in our studies than when we're actually preaching, although I also enjoy that. I can remember shortly after I began full-time preaching, I was asked to preach on the various parts of the Old Testament that had helped to confirm my faith. That was the title I was given. And we looked at various things, like the fact that the Lord Jesus would be born of a virgin. And at that time in my ministry, (laughs) such great facts were being denied by certain prominent preachers. And yet it's perfectly evident that that's what the Bible says, and so I was confident (laughs) to preach it. We're also told in the Scriptures where the Lord Jesus would be born, We're also told various details of his ministry. We are told all sorts of various things in relation to how he would come proclaiming the the name of the Lord. And the book we're into today, the prophecy of Isaiah, is often called the Gospel of the Old Testament. And chapters 40 through to 66 are concerned with the coming of the Messiah, both in relation to his first coming to earth and then to his second coming and his future reign and glory. So we're going to look at chapter 53. And for me, this was probably the great clinching fact in my own coming to faith. It was also the scripture through which my father came to faith when he was nine years old. And he witnessed to the Lord's reality in his life for 89 years died when he was 98. So let's read these scriptures together. I'm going to read the whole of the chapter and just comment on the the opening verses. We'll look at the closing verses, God willing, this evening. So the beginning of chapter 53 of the prophecy of Isaiah. Remember, we're about 700 years B.C. as these words are written. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, or perhaps better, he shall grow up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, 
smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Just an amazing portion of Scripture. And I can't ever read it without being strangely warmed in my own heart. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning about the mystery of the revelation of the Lord. And the fact that the writer Isaiah just asked the question, well, who has believed our report? And I suppose it's necessary to begin there. Do you believe? It's an old-fashioned question. But it's really the crux of an experience with the Messiah. If you and I are going to know God, it comes through belief. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 11 says that without faith it is impossible to please him. And he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's important, I think, that we ask ourselves the question this morning, do I really believe? Is this part of my experience do I come to church because I enjoy coming to church? And that's good if you do. Or do I come to church because I believe in my heart, the Lord Jesus, and have confessed with my mouth that he's my Lord? Do I know him, in other words? And whenever Isaiah breaks into this great song that we have here in chapter 53, He's asking us, to be, do we believe that which he's about to declare? The arm of the Lord always carries with it in the Old Testament the thought of salvation. 
If you want to look up, not now, but if you want to look up Psalm 44, the opening verses, and Isaiah 59, verses 15 to 17, and Deuteronomy 7, verses 17 to 19, where you have three further mentions of the arm of the Lord, they're always about salvation, about God's intervention in human history, about him bringing his people out of Egypt, about him bringing you and I into a personal experience of who he truly is. Because he wants us to know his salvation. He wants us to be saved, to, to have that awareness that we are safe for eternity through our faith in the Lord Jesus. And if we come to him in faith and belief, then we will discover the armor of the Lord revealed in our own lives and will be secured by him forever. The arm is the expression of our will. The hand is normally used in Scripture as the expression of strength. Uh, the reiterated phrase in the Old Testament is the right hand. I know some of you were unfortunate to be born the wrong way round, but for general folk, the right hand is the place of strength, and that tends to be the emphasis in Scripture. The right hand is the one which it holds us. But the arm is the thing that works the hand. So the arm fulfills the purpose which is going on in the mind. And it's interesting just how these pictures are given to us of how the Almighty functions. The arm of the Lord. To whom is it revealed? To those who believe, those who come to faith. They discover it to be true in their own experience. And then he moves into this great prophetic song that we have in, in the verses that follow. And he just makes a bold statement. He shall grow up, or he grew up, because it's both present and future and past tense in the will and mind of God. And verse 2 says, he shall grow up. What a mystery is here. When you read the New Testament... Apart from the stories around the birth of the Lord Jesus and his conception in relation to Mary, and then the, the first year or so of his life, there's silence until he appears on the scene. And if you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll discover that Mark begins his Gospel with the baptism of Jesus, which is generally thought to have happened when he was about 30 years old. So you have this period of silence, and it's the prophets who give us the, the glimpse of what was going on during that period. And you have this beautiful phrase, he shall or he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. And Malachi was spoken and penned sometime about 400 B.C., Approximately thus. So you have 400 years of history that are, mi are missing at the end of the Old Testament. And it has been said that those are the barren years. Those are the times, or that's the time when Israel wandered far away from God, continued to worship idols, and really had, although they, the temple was there and had been rebuilt after the return from Babylon, it wasn't of such supreme importance to the people of Israel during that period. And there's little known about their personal history 
in relation to their following of God. And no voice from God during those 400 years that are recorded for us. But into that barrenness and out of that dryness, at the time when it seemed most bleak, you read these words. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of that dry ground, that period of dearth, when there was nothing of any consequence happening in the land of Israel, suddenly God comes into flesh and comes to express himself in manhood. And he shall grow up before him. You read a little glimpse when the Lord Jesus is 12 years old. And he's found in the temple and he says, look, I've got to be about my father's business. And he asks all sorts of questions of the rulers in the temple and they can't answer him. And I have a feeling, and it's only a notion, that this is one of the verses that he asked them about. What does this mean, you learned men in Israel? What does it mean he shall grow up before him as a tender plant? And you know what those learned men would have said? They'd have said this is referring to the Messiah. They'd have said this is this whole chapter is about the Messiah and his ministry. Strangely, after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, which is the fulfilment of this passage, they never ever referred again in their teaching to this chapter as referring to the Messiah. And if you study if you study Jewish history from um, 2,000 years ago onward, you'll discover that none of the great teachers ever talked about this chapter as referring to the Messiah. But prior to his coming, they all teach that this is referring to the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? They're faced with the evidence of Isaiah 53, and they know they have crucified Christ. And I will point out this morning before I close two or three statements which clearly illustrate crucifixion. But they deny now that this chapter refers to him. Men choose to believe or choose to disbelieve. Which are you? Which am I? So he grows up before the Almighty as a tender plant and comes as a a root out of dry ground. This which had produced nothing for 400 years, no no prophetic word, no particular picture of the Almighty. Suddenly he's being revealed in all his glory. And then you read this in verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And it's an interesting word that's used here. He had no beauty of form. The Lord Jesus wasn't uh, in his flesh of particular beauty of form. And it's important to recognize that. He wasn't cherubic. He didn't appear as a cherub. And in his personal life here, there was no display of glory or majesty. There was no diadem. There was no crown. There was no halo. And it's interesting that the prophet is so accurate in this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. In other words, there was nothing about him in his outward appearance that would naturally cause men and women to flock to him. And yet throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus attracted vast crowds of folk. 
because of his moral character, because of who he was. So men, when they came, and women, when they came to listen to him, said, never a man spake like this man. And Nicodemus, when he comes to him, says, no man could do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So it was demonstrated in his function, if I can use that term about the Lord Jesus. It was demonstrated in the things that he did and the things that he said, that he was someone exceptional. But it was not shown in his bodily appearance at all. And you'll notice what follows here. He was despised and rejected by men. I mean, this is, this is just amazing. It was a manger he was born in, not a cradle. And the bulk of humanity continues to treat his name like dirt. And I use the term carefully. The most common usage for the name Jesus in our generation is as a swear word. Despised and rejected, thought of as no consequence. I often wonder why folk go to church at Christmas if his name and life are ignored throughout the year. If he just decide, well, really, I've got no time for this. He was rejected. Men withdrew from him. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, Will you also go away? As men withdrew from him, because he painted a hard path, the Lord, when he was here. And when people began to recognize what it was going to cost them, they decided they would have no time for him. Despised. And rejected. I was thinking a lot this week about the possible loneliness of the Lord Jesus. What must it have been like for him, the Prince of Peace, to live in a society in his own generation which had been conquered by the Romans and who were being actively hated by the Jews of his time? What must it have been like for the Lord Jesus to come across all the results of sin, sickness and disease and death, and to spend part of his ministry in dealing with those issues, and yet recognize all the time that, you know, this is the result of that which I'm going to suffer for. Do you remember that once the Lord Jesus stood over Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, And it's said that he wept. The king of kings weeping. You know why he was weeping? You will not come unto me that you might have life. And here he is, the the glory of God and flesh. And he's weeping because of the rejection of men and women. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and his own experiences I've just outlined. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we had no esteem for him. Didn't value him. 
And you find that again and again in the New Testament, particularly from those who should have known better. The scribes and the Pharisees, those who knew the law, those who knew what God required all the time during his ministry, they wanted to get rid of him. They had no esteem for him. He came to his own people and his own people had no time for him. A man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. He came to give his disciples fullness of joy. He says that to them in John 14 when he's about to leave them. And yet as I've already illustrated, he was a man of sorrows. You know what Jewish tradition has? That this Jesus of Nazareth was never seen to laugh in public. Such is Jewish tradition. He never laughed in public. Heartbroken by that which he saw around him. And he who has the fullness of life spends his time knowing sorrows and grief. His was a personal tribulation. You know, you and I look at things and we sort of wring our hands sometimes, don't we? And say, don't know what the world's coming to. What must it have been like for the one who made it, who was the creator, and comes to it and sees the, the damage that sin has wrought and is wreaking? A world which was created perfect and now blighted in every aspect by sin. Thorns on roses. What a rose was like before the fall. Anger in the heart of lions. Yet one day in the future the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. Such it was in creation. Please don't sully creation prior to sin with some sort of notion that death was there prior to sin. It wasn't. And when you begin to put these things together, I suppose this vision which Jeremiah is penning for us is just, well, it's utterly, it's utterly amazing. So we hid away our faces. When I was a youngster, Stuart Briscoe came to preach at a series of uh, coffee bars that I was singing at. And he told on one evening the story of Philemon and his slave, Anesimus. You know, you know the story, a little book in the New Testament. And this runaway slave is, go, a slave is going through Rome. And he sees this fellow coming down the other side of the street. And he says, I know that man. That's probably, I'm sure that is the Apostle Paul. And so he crosses over to the other side of the road so that Paul won't see him because he's a runaway slave. And he goes to look in the window and Stuart Briscoe says he's looking in the window and suddenly discovers it's a toy shop. So he thinks, i better look at the next window and he suddenly discovers that that's a place for ladies' garments. And as he looks over his shoulder, he suddenly sees that Paul has recognized him. That's the picture here. There were people who would cross over the street so that they wouldn't meet face to face with the Lord Jesus. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. 
don't want them to see me. I don't want them to get too close. I don't count them as significant. I don't count them as important, so I'm going to hide away. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? Well, what's it all about? Why, why is he here? Why, why is he suffering like this? Why is this the, the background to the verses that follow? Verse 4, and you come into a different vein. And I've often wondered how much Isaiah understood of what he's writing here. Because we're told by the Apostle Peter that men were writing that which they did not know as they were inspired by the Spirit of God. And this is what it says. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. This is what this report's about, my dear friends. Who's believed our report? This is what it's about. This is why the Christ is here. This is why this background is given. Because he's taking up our infirmities. And the reason he's a man of sorrows is because he's carrying our sorrows. They're bearing in upon his heart and upon his person. And yet as we look at him, the next part of the verse says, we considered him stricken by God, that he was being punished by God for his own weaknesses. But he wasn't. He was stricken by God for our infirmities and our weaknesses and our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. And he was afflicted by God. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. But what Isaiah is saying here was that we can look in Christ and see his sufferings and not recognize they're for us. You know, just see them as in some sort of um, panorama and not recognize that they're immediate. And when the Christ's on the cross, he's dying for me. He's stricken by God and smitten for me. And so this beautiful verse, which was the verse which really brought my father to faith, but he was wounded... For our transgressions is the AV translation. The NIV translation is the correct one. He was pierced for our transgressions, for us going over the boundaries that God had set. And the word actually means to bore through. So if you're boring through something, it's the word which is translated pierced here at the beginning of verse 5 of Isaiah 53. Let me say, tell you a wee bit of history. It is thought that crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians about B.C. 600. It's unknown before that in human history. Isaiah is writing B.C. 700. So here is a moment of revelation from the Holy Spirit that this one who's going to die for my transgressions is going to be pierced through. Isn't that amazing? Sitting in my wee study having a wee cry when I read this this week. That this revelation is brought to Isaiah a hundred years before man even thought of it. This cruelest form of death. It was only practiced by the Romans for about 60 years. And then only for extreme criminality. He was pierced. For my overstepping of God's law. And he was crushed for my blotting of my copybook. I'm old enough to remember being given a pen 
in primary school and told to dip it in an inkwell and then to start writing with it. Some of you remember that? Yeah. yeah. You ever blot your copybook? Yeah. Ever try to get rid of the blot? Yeah. Not done work, does it? See, I can't get rid of my own blotting. Once I've blotted my copybook, it's there forever. And that's what the word iniquity means. It means to blot my copybook or to come short of God's glory, to quote another verse. The punishment that brings us peace and brought us peace was upon him. So somehow or other, the thing which is going to bring me peace has got to be applied to this Messiah who comes. Somehow or other, he has to bear the punishment for my sin so that I can be at peace. And so you have this emphasis upon the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus died instead of. You see, the sentence for my sin is death. Jesus did not sin. He took my place and died death for me. He, he bears the, the punishment for my sin, which is death. So he comes in, in my place. He becomes my substitute. So it's that which throughout which he has done, as the last phrase says here, by his wounds we are healed. And this one who he's about to say is led like a lamb to the slaughter. This one dies for me. He takes my place. And he says to me this morning, Glasgow, you can go absolutely free. Better than that, I'll give you a new life. Better than that, I'll take all your sins away. All you have to do is believe. And so we're back to where we started. Do I believe? Is this, is this personal? Do I really, truly recognize that the Son of God died for me? Because if I don't, there is no other way back. You understand? Doesn't matter how hard we try. Doesn't matter what we do. The sentence of death is still upon me unless I recognize Christ as my substitute. Unless I recognize that he has died for me. And you say, well, I can't help it. That's the next verse. And I close with this this morning. Of course you can't help it. It's not your fault, is it? It's not your fault. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. Thank God. You know why people go to, you know the sort of people go to church? People who are sinners. People who think they're good. People who are sinners. So, Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. A sheep doesn't go astray because it's naughty. A sheep goes astray because it's a sheep. I know that's a bit of profound Irishness. But, you know, that's the fact. It's its nature. It's a wanderer. And then sometimes after we've wandered... We decide, well, I'm going to do it my way. 
And we turn everyone to his own way. And I believe with all my heart that at various times in our lives we take a cold-blooded decision to do what we know is wrong. And I've never met, maybe some of you ladies are different, but I've never met a man who wouldn't admit that. Men will admit, if you talk to them straight, I know I did wrong when I. The chastisement of our peace is upon him. doesn't matter where you've wandered, doesn't matter where you've gone, because the Lord has laid on him, and take these words home with you, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Those of you who feel that the atonement is limited, tell me how you do it with that in relation to this verse, because I'd be really interested. He lays upon him the iniquity of us all. So I can go to anyone, any time, any place, anywhere, at any point in history and say, listen man, listen woman, Christ has died for your sin. Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can know forgiveness today. Absolute, total. Because this wonderful person died for you. And he's alive. That's the last part of the chapter. You have to come back tonight. But he's alive. The greatest attested fact in the history of the period of Christ's crucifixion is the resurrection of Jesus. And because he's alive, he can touch your life right now. All you have to do is talk to him. Say, Lord, I really want to bring my life to you. Thank you for dying for me. Well, what a Christmas you'll have this year if you come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we just praise you for your word. We thank you that these men of long ago were inspired by you to write of things which they didn't know and to write of one that they'd never met and to say these things about him whom we now know as the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom you revealed as the anointed one. And we just praise you for him. We thank you that he's in your presence today and that he ever lives to make intercession for us. That he's constantly before you to bring efficacy to the work which he has done in relation to personal lives. And so, Father, we pray for our congregation this morning. We thank you for them. And we just pray in your mercy that you will deal with each of us, not after our iniquity, but in your grace, because the Lord Jesus has borne our iniquity and died for us all. And in that hope, we just leave ourselves in your hand. Bring us to faith, we pray this morning, through Christ our Lord. Amen.